Welcome to Talking Foosball Extra. This week, we have for you an interview, Nick Wildhagen, conducted with Bundesliga reporter Ron Ulrich, and uh, they got to talking about Schalke no fear. Now, of course, we all know that Schalke are down in the second division, which is very much Nick Wildhagen's purview these days, and they're doing quite well right now. But behind the scenes, there's been some political intrigue going on at the club, at least over the past mm, five or six weeks since the uh, the Russian invasion of Ukraine. Why? Well, it's because their primary sponsor, or I guess at these days, former primary sponsor, Gazprom, has such close links with the Kremlin that it was more or less untenable for them to maintain a relationship with the club. Anyway, Ron Ulrich watches Schalke very closely. He has a lot of insight on sort of the overall history of the club, how they got to where they are, how uh, their relationship to Gazprom sort of relates to their current financial situation. Lots of good stuff. The interview was recorded Toward the beginning of the uh, invasion of Ukraine, uh, which happened, um, the interview happened back in March. Uh, we'll bring it to you in just a moment, right after this short break. is German football journalist uh, Ron Ulrich, who works for Hessischer Rundfunk, and we're here to talk about Schalke and their sponsorship deal with Gazprom, and the man who sort of brokered that deal back in his time as, as Schalke chairman, and that is Clemens Tönnies. So, Ron, welcome back to Talking Foosball. Uh, thanks for having me. Excellent. So, first off, tell us, how did that sponsorship deal between Gazprom and Schalke Mulfia come about? It came about in the midst. 20s, I think uh, Schalke started wearing the jerseys with Gazprom on it in 2007. And uh, there's some rumors about it that uh, Gerd Schröner, the um, yeah, notorious, uh, in these days notorious, uh, former chancellor of uh, Germany, was involved in it because he had some great connections to Russia. And yeah, at that time, Gazprom uh, started uh, to grow his its investment and sponsorships in football and they from what I heard is that they also tried to get uh, into other clubs and Schalke had uh, the advantage of the connections of Gerd Schröder and Clement Stenius uh, who himself held up the new jersey of Schalke together with, uh, with Vladimir Putin in 2006 I think and in January 2007 uh, Schalke of here uh, started the sponsorship and I think those two men were um, central for the deal uh, in these years and Schalke was also uh, in a different uh, position because they were contenders for the German title uh, were a vice champion of Germany then in 2007 when the sponsorship started so for Gazprom it was a, yeah, a very good deal uh, to get into football and there was a, a well-known club uh, who was willing uh, yeah, to uh, to do this sponsorship deal uh, the other two clubs also Dortmund and Bayern München who, were, who had the, the same popularity at that time uh, they had uh, sponsorship deals and weren't open for that. Uh, I think uh, CEO of Borussia Dortmund, Hans-Joachim uh, Watzke, said recently that they declined uh, a potential offer 
of Gazprom. I don't know how severe and how concrete the, the, the talkings with Gazprom and Borussia Dortmund were at that time. But he said that uh, Borussia Dortmund uh, didn't want to do it at, uh, in this uh, period. So, um, so it was Schalke and it was uh, a good deal um, on a financial level for Schalke and a good deal for promotion in the eyes of Gazprom. Yeah, and you know, Gazprom is sort of like a state-owned company in Russia and Vladimir Putin and Clemens Tonius, who was uh, the CEO of Schalke at that point, they had a sort of a close friendship at that time, didn't they? I don't know if it was a close friendship. Uh, I mean, from what Clemens Tonius says. I think he has, a, um, you know, the interpretation uh, from him of friendship is uh, quite, uh, you know, he has many, many friends uh, in his eyes. And I won't, I mean, I can't really judge it, but I, I'm assuming that they didn't exchange uh, phone calls uh, every day or so. So it was. I think it was not a friendship deal or something like that. It was uh, it had um, great economical value, and um, the thing is that Clement Tonius wasn't indeed the CEO. He was part of the board, the supervisory uh, board of Schalke, but he himself he mixed up his roles. So um, he, from what I heard, uh, was involved in. Uh, engaging new players, uh, talking to uh, potential new managers and players, and it wasn't really from from the paper. It wasn't his his task to do that, because he during his tenure wasn't really um, yeah obliged to do that. He was just uh, on the supervisory board, uh, not have the 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 task of operating and being involved in the sportive decisions. So. But he really extended uh, his tasks, and um, but I, I can't really tell you if, if he was really close to Vladimir Putin. He had some with his uh, company because he started as a butcher, and uh, he's a big company, and he's a billionaire. <laughs> Sorry, he was he became a billionaire, and uh, he is also his company has some investments in some areas bought in Russia. So um, I think that he exchanged views on that with Vladimir Putin as well, and it was a, like for him could have been a gate opener to pursue economical uh, interests for his own company and not for Schalke. Well, I mean, there is that story that Clemens Tonis told himself that Vladimir Putin actually got in touch with him around the time when Bayern were interested in uh, getting hold of Manuel Neuer, and Putin told him, "No, you shouldn't sell him." Do you, do you think it's a bit, that is a bit of boasting uh, on, on Tony's part? Or is, is there actually some truth to the, to the fact that Vladimir Putin, of all people, would, would take such a close interest in what is going on <laughs> at a German football club? The leader of, you know, one of the biggest countries in the world and uh, quite a busy man, I must assume. I can I can only express my uh, deepest um, doubts about these stories. Um, Putin never attended a single match at Schalke, and what I can can judge or what I read, he never expressed any sportive views on what is going on at Schalke. 
Um, what Gazprom did was they had a member um, continuously in the supervisory board at Schalke and a former member wasn't really interested either in uh, the decisions. He didn't turn up very often at the meetings uh, of the supervisory board. After the changing of the members, a close friend of Vladimir Putin, and he indeed was a close friend of uh, Vladimir Putin, Matthias Warnick, stepped into the supervisory board and some members say that he had a different view on, on things and he regularly attended the meetings and expressed his uh, thoughts on the decisions and yeah, he had a, a different standing in the club and um, the CEO knows so the, the new CEO of Schalke uh, said um, in an interview on the weekend that when um, Matthias Warnick stepped down that he was a true Schalke supporter and maybe there's some truth in it, maybe not, but he was much more interested than um, uh, he's the, the, the former member from Gazprom in the supervisory board. And uh, coming back to your question, I really doubt that Vladimir Putin really followed what was going on at Schalke. <laughs> I mean, if there's maybe one club he would have taken an interest in, it would have been Dynamo Dresden, uh, as he he'd been stationed in Dresden as a as a KGB man. He was in Dresden between 1985 and 1990, and uh, he actually was the KGB officer who stopped protesters from entering the KGB quarters in the city in 1989 as, as things were tumbling down for the Soviet Union and those protesters came from Stasi HQ in Dresden and then went onwards to the KGB to to destroy that, those quarters as well. They were actually met by officer, KGB officer Vladimir Putin, who told them in fluent German to make a retreat as he had ordered unwelcome protesters to be shot should they enter the premise. Well, so Vladimir Putin certainly is, a, he actually does speak a lot of German, from yeah. what I understand. Yeah. And he, under, he understands Germany probably better than any other country in Europe yeah. from his background. Yeah, that's true. Um, uh, a lot of politicians in Germany um, tell the press that whenever Putin uh, gets to a point during a conversation where he thinks that uh, the points are more important than others, that he changes into speaking German and fluently. And that is maybe one reason why he got closer to uh, some German politicians at the top, former Chancellor uh, Gerd Schröder, who... At one time, really, he um, um, recalled one evening at the house of uh, Vladimir Putin when the sauna, is, uh, is it the correct word? In, uh, sauna, yeah. Sauna, when the sauna of Vladimir Putin uh, caught fire and Schroeder kept uh, sitting there quite unimpressed uh, and he said, uh, I just want to finish my beer before I get out. And from what Schroeder said, this was what uh, really impressed Vladimir Putin about the personality of Schröder. I don't know if it's true or not, but he speaks German uh, fluently, but he used it as um, yeah, as kind of tactics. Uh, so whenever there's a point during the conversation uh, that he really highlighted, then uh, he turns to speaking in, uh, in German. But from the start of the conversation, there were also interpreters at the meetings with the politicians. 
turning back to the sponsorship deal, that actually was one of the longest sponsorship deals in Germany. It was actually the current longest sponsorship deal until it was dissolved, I think, as it went from 2007 until 2022, which is 15 years. How was it received by the fans and, and was it controversial at times among the Schalke fans? Well, it was controversial uh, throughout the entire uh, period. And I think from day one on, uh, the Schalke supporters feared that the sponsor could um, take influence on the decision in the club. But they never did. And they had no interest in it because for for Gazprom and uh, for Russia, it was the same operation like with UEFA. They profited uh, from presenting their name and uh, there were some large partners in the stadium of Schalke promoting the new pipeline between uh, German and Russia, Nord Stream 2. And this is like, it's a, like an advertisement uh, that you can't really have anywhere else because you have to you have to keep in mind that every second weekend there are 60,000 people in the stadium seeing these banners. Uh, you have millions of people watching the games. When, when Schalke played the Champions League, you have several millions who were aware of their jersey sponsor. And this was like um, high-class PR. So there was no need for them to take influence. And so on the other hand, it really facilitated things for Russia once the name of Nord Stream 2 or Gazprom is established, uh, really facilitates um, the deals and the meetings with politicians because you have a certain name that people could relate to. And maybe at some points and at some meetings with uh, politicians, it was also a great introduction, starting with football topics. And I think for the supporters, there were several points where they really doubted if this sponsorship deal could cope with the values uh, the club stands for. And you have to just just look at the situation in the Caucasus with um, the tensions and the war in Georgia in 2008. Schalke had a, uh, had a player called Levan Kubiashvili from Georgia in 2008 who refused uh, to enter the pitch with the jersey and the name Gazprom on it because they were attacking his people in his home country. And that was one point of many when Schalke supporters and the board as well really really doubted if this was the right decision. But throughout all the years, Schalke was always in financial debt and always in financial crisis. So just until the point uh, last week, no one really dared to end the sponsorship because it was so crucial for the existence and for the, for the future of the club. It was the best-paid sponsorship deal in the Bundesliga 2 by country miles, I think, it's, it's fair to say. And um, Nord Stream 2 that you mentioned, that was a planned pipeline that was supposed to transport gas from Russia directly to Germany. And, and that has now been shelved, obviously, due to what's going on in Ukraine at the moment. You mentioned Matthias Warnick there a, a little bit earlier. He was the guy from Gazprom who sat on the Schalke board. You said he took a bit of a little more, more active role into what was going on at, at the club than his predecessor. But what can you tell me about him and his background? He had also a very vivid life, so to say, to put it that way. 
he was uh, an agent for for the Stasi, and after the Berlin Wall fell, he made some contacts in the uh, German economy, and he was a high-ranked Pierre guy, or um, yeah, he was a very good connector. He uh, made some connections in the former Soviet uh, regions with German entrepreneurs. Uh, he lived in Düsseldorf for quite a while, and I think during the past ten years he had four or five different homes around the world. Uh, one is in Freiburg, I think, where he regularly uh, lived, um, also in Switzerland and somewhere else. And uh, he learned to know Vladimir Putin, I think, decades ago at a meeting and several news uh, agencies, also media outlets in Germany report that he was really helpful for uh, Vladimir Putin and in when uh, Putin's former wife uh, was uh, sincerely ill and needed uh, the help of uh, specialist doctors. And Warnick was the one who made it possible for specialist doctors to to fly over and uh, help the former wife of uh, Vladimir Putin. So both of them, they were really close to each other. Um, yes, uh, I mentioned that the new CEO of Schalke gave an interview uh, on the weekend with Süddeutsche uh, Zeitung. And he said that uh, last week Warnick uh, stepped down, so he wasn't forced to uh, leave the club or leave the board of Schalke. And maybe that is true, maybe not. Maybe uh, Warnick, uh, as a guy who is well known for uh, really have a good sense for how things could develop, maybe he really was aware that there was no no future for him or no future for, for Gazprom in the German football club, but also uh, you mentioned it with the stopped uh, relations or the stopped pipeline uh, Nord Stream uh, 2, that there is no future for a guy like him, not in German football clubs, but in German economy at the moment. I'm not, I am not aware where he's right now, if he's somewhere else or if he has gone to, to Russia. But yeah, his stepping down last week was the first sign of uh, how things could change at, uh, at Schalke after you know, the war in Ukraine uh, started. And uh, I think it was a good sign for the club because um, for the public it was so important to see that um, yeah, the club was able to really lift the the connections with Gazprom because everyone was aware how big the depths of the club were. And so from the chronological order, it was the stepping down of uh, Varnik. It was um, followed by the decision of uh, putting the name of Gazprom from the shirts, putting the name from the shirts, from the jerseys of Schalke and then finally uh, ended the sponsorship deal. So he played a more active role than his uh, predecessor, as he said, in the supervisory board. And also his stepping down last week had a meaning for, for the club. Yeah, I mean, he has, as you said, a, an incredible uh, life story. And uh, I'm not using the word incredible in, in a positive way here. He's actually uh, one of the few German people who have received awards from both Erich Honecker and Vladimir Putin, in fact. He received uh, the Medal of Honorary Service to the Volksarmee in gold from the GDR, from Erich Milke. Milke, of course, being a, a Stasi chief, 
who ran BFC Dynamo and uh, had a horrible track record in terms of how he ran the Stasi. And then he was awarded the Order of Honor by Vladimir Putin back in 2012. And he has a Stasi background. <laughs> so, what a guy. What a guy. And there's actually a rumor out there, according to his English language Wikipedia page, that he and Vladimir Putin worked together on recruiting Western agents to the KGB back in the 80s. But that has been refuted by Vonnegut, who says it's not true, as he's uh, met Vladimir Putin for the first time, either in 89 or 91. Oh, I haven't heard that. So that, <laughs> that is uh, quite a story. But Varnik is gone now. Um, Nord Stream 2 is gone now. Um, and another man who's sort of gone now is Clemens Tönnies. Now, he's sort of been a very interesting character over there at Schalke. And, I mean, was that Gazprom deal one of the things that kept him in his office for, you know, almost 20 years? He was at the club between 2001 and 2020, which is, you know, in the world of football, that's an incredibly long time. Yeah, I think there are different lines for explaining that. First of all, it's Schalke and it's uh, special history or tradition. Uh, I don't know why that is, but from the, I think from the late 60s or so, there was also one strong personality at the top of the club who presented the club to the outside world and uh, always had the the image of being a really tough guy, um, old school guy, and to put Schalke at first place and seeing Schalke as a family and uh, being just like the, the big patron uh, of the club. It could start with uh, Oskar Siebert, and it goes it goes to uh, Günther Eichberg, who he was named the Sonnenkönig, like the the Sun King Louis the Sixteenth, I think. Günther Eichberg, a, a former uh, president uh, of Schalke, uh, he made his money from uh, beauty clinics uh, in Germany, and then uh, it came on uh, Rudi Assel. Maybe you know him, the one who was uh, smoking cigars. Um, uh, former Werder Bremen man. Yeah, yeah, he was really cultivating his uh, macho image and he was a strong personality at the club for um, several years and then he became ill and Clemens Tönnies was the one among others who really uh, pushed him out of the club and uh, yeah, took the took the power of the club and he as, as you know, like the others uh, which are uh, mentioned, um, uh, he was a strong personality and maybe people tend to believe in these guys as being the the patrons of the club maybe that this is something that he really profited from that um, many supporters wish to have some strong man on the top of the club who pretend to be in charge of everything and he was he was a rich man he was a man who really could impress people with not only with his money but also with his way of speaking and he he said to have it have us an aura or a, yeah he, he could really impress people and at some point he uh, lent a high amount of money uh, to the club but uh, the club paid it back to him so yeah there was always the um, the belief among um, yeah some supporters that Schalke was dependent on his money uh, which wasn't the case in, in fact which is uh, Schalke was in depth uh, throughout the entire tenure of uh, uh, of Clemens Tönnies at the club. So 
even even last week, uh, Clemens Tennis proposed to the club that he could give money. But uh, <laughs> yeah, even in this uh, different times, but I think times have changed at Schalke, and they and the the new boards and the new board members, whether it's in the supervisory board or the new CEO. They try to make the club not as dependent as it was for uh, individual beings such as uh, Clemens Tennis. It's more broader at the moment, more people who can take the decision and really calculate and to really yeah, think of put the financial well-being of the club or the, the, the future uh, at first place and uh, not the risk of investments because Schalke was risking uh, his future by investing and buying very expensive players to get to the Champions League every year. And once they failed to get to the Champions League, the entire house just broke down. And uh, this is also connected with uh, Clement Stenius, let alone his expressions, his yeah, racist expressions during last summer and the conditions of uh, the workers at his company. Uh, these things really contributed to his ending at Schalke uh, in the last summer. I mean, would you want Clemens Turnius back uh, at Schalke, really? I mean, if we go over his tenure at Schalke, he really seems like a guy who's been mostly guided by his gut and not really thought things through. Because if, you know, look at the entire period of his 19 years at the club, there have been 21 different coaches on the sidelines. On top of that, you have Mike Buskins and Hoop Stevens, who've been interim coaches on a, on a number of occasions during that time. And they'll become interim coaches right now, yeah? <laughs> yes. Uh, I mean, they, it's the same old story with this club. Hoop turned it down and Mike said yes. Well, and, and when it comes to the number of sporting directors that have been there as well, I mean... There has been Felix Maggett, Klaus Telt, Christian Heidel, Jochen Schneider. I mean, by God, your head is spinning and, and all that money spent on expensive players and, you know, new coaches coming in wanting different players, new sporting directors coming in wanting other players and players being sold at a loss. It all sounds a bit like HSV, but maybe at a slightly higher level in terms of the football that was being played, um, if I'm being very yeah, mean here. I, I, I think that's... The problem is, as a, as a manager or as a coach or sporting director, uh, if you want to work with Clement Sennius, you have to realize that you really have to work under him. I remember uh, the team manager, Jens Keller, told the story that there was an important game for Schalke. I think, I don't know which game it was, but it was uh, the last game of the season. Jens Schalke had to reach uh, the Champions League and had to win. And just, I think, five minutes before kickoff, Clemens Turner walked into the dressing room with some celebrities and just showed them around, showed them, this is my team, this is my team, uh, and introduced uh, the celebrities to the players. Well, what is left for you as a manager to do? You can't really kick out the CEO of the club who you're negotiating with uh, when it comes to terms of contracts and new players and all that. And that was just a small example of how things worked at Schalke. As I put it, he was in a supervisory board. He wasn't really in charge of buying new players or getting new coaches. But this is, in fact, what he did. And on top of it, 
he had some brilliant exchanges with a big tablet paper in Germany, the Bild, who really knew about new coaches at Schalke just before the people at the club knew about it. There were some introductions of managers when this was the case. It was the case with Roberto Di Matteo, who was well known for being the manager of Chelsea when they won the Champions League. But no one really uh, seemed to take notice that he was only in charge for one or two games. And uh, just until now, Roberto Di Matteo is said to be one of the worst managers in charge at Schalke because this was complete destructive anti-football. But that's a different story. And but the the bigger picture and more important and what what led to the to the end of Kenneth's tennis was what I mentioned before. He made some racist comments about Africa in 2020. There were rum- not only rumors, but uh, reports about really bad conditions of uh, the workers at the factory of Clement Turner's. They had to live together with, I think, 10 people in one small room. No one really cared about them. And there was a massive outbreak of uh, COVID, a massive amount of corona cases in his uh, factory. Because he didn't uh, really care about the workers there, what he kept saying was that he wasn't responsible because there were some sub-companies that he hired and they were responsible for the workers. But in the end, no one really could doubt that he knew what was going on in his factory. So he was responsible for his expressions about Africa and for the conditions of his workers. And you might say that this is nothing to do with football. But it it stands a massive contrast and it's just the opposite of what Schalke is about because Schalke named itself as a Kumpel und Maloha club. This is this goes back to the to the beginning of the club when the, when it was a club for, for the coal miners and it has its roots in the coal miners area. So it stands for the workers and the multiculturalism of uh, the area Schalke is from because uh, workers from all around Europe came there to work together. And so that's what I try to say. What Clement Sennis did in the very last two years was yeah, complete net negative and complete opposite to the values of Schalke. Well, you say the last two years. Okay, so you yeah. have scandalous conditions for East European workers who all then all went on to get COVID. You had his comments about Africa at the, was it the day of labor in Paderborn? And I think it was 2019 when that was pre-COVID. But if you, if you go through his life story and his Vita and you look, you know, into uh, Spiegel articles and such and, and to do a bit of search on the internet, you actually see that this guy has a scandal like every two or three years that doesn't fit with being in charge at childcare because if you look back like three years earlier than 2019 you had Clemens Turnius actually being discussed on you know on a national political level in Germany as there was the so-called sausage loophole mm. scandal which uh, what was he doing then can you explain what he did to be, you know, it was a big scandal at the time, wasn't it? I don't know if I can ex- uh, explain it in English. I think it was about the um, conditions of the sausages. And they were, to put it plainly, they 
they put water into the sausages. Oh, that was another scandal. I'm, I'm thinking about the one where he actually bankrupted the company. Uh, uh, yeah, yeah. That was fine. The, the, the Comex uh, scandal. So uh, there was no. Totally this, scandal. this is another scandal. No, 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 no. Can't keep up with them. No, the, the, the scandal I'm, I'm referring to is where, where he actually was fined. One of his companies was fined for price fixing with competitors. Ah, okay, yeah, yeah. Ah, that's as well. Yeah, but uh, as you see, there were so many scandals, but it wasn't... Um, these scandals didn't target the real life or the topic uh, which Schalke could relate to or oppose to. Um, the racism scandal had something to do with Schalke because Schalke had uh, images. They were the first club in Germany who put an anti-racism uh, paragraph into their, what is it, Magna Carta of a club, so then into their guidelines mm. in uh, the beginning of the 90s. So this is an anti-racist club uh, and has a, the organized fan base of Schalke is anti-racist. So this was something that he couldn't get away from that easily like uh, with the other scandals and um, the point also was that he didn't realize that he did something wrong or that he said something wrong he apologized to I think Schalke supporters or apologized to uh, to his company but he never apologized to the African people who he insulted with his comments so in the aftermath of this scandal he really feared everyone and feared that everyone would would be against him and um, he said that there was a conspiracy against him and all that and it all came together with the uh, sportive and financial decline of Schalke in the in the past year I think so the pressure within the club and outside the club rose to such an extent that even Clement Stenius realized he couldn't stand anymore yeah, I mean, uh, this is going to be my last question. I mean, okay, you had the the Comex trading scandal, and Comex, Comex trading yeah. is, is, is quite complicated. You no, had I, him I, this topic I really can't explain in English. And you had him, he was, I think in 2013, he uh, got a fine for 90,000 euros because he withheld some ownership uh, details from the tax authorities. There was the whole, um, you know, he actually had a, company that fixed prices with competitors and when he found out that he was going to be slapped with a massive million euro boot what he did was actually let this company go bankrupt and get out of the fine that way yeah. <laughs> quite clever that loophole was called then the sausage loophole which now has been closed by german law but what really always got to me when it came to clemens turnius over the years is the fact that he is sort of always boasting about himself and his personal brilliance and he always talks about his contacts with Gerhard Schröder, Vladimir Putin and you know he tells like the story about how Vladimir Putin loves his porkhogs in like every second interview that he gave prior to the war in Ukraine. How does that shape up with the image of being a workers and miners club? I mean wasn't there at any point anybody wondering does he fit at Schalke? I mean, look at what he's saying and what he's doing. And, I mean, you just have to look at his house in Reda, which looks absolutely ridiculous. Is this a guy who, you know, who we can identify with as being a workers and miners club? Yeah, I think it was quite diverse. 
uh, a lot of uh, supporters really questioned uh, him as a person and with all the scandals going on and would would agree that uh, in not in a single minute he was appropriate to be um, uh, the chief of the supervisory board of Schalke. But, to be honest, a lot of supporters really thought that he was responsible for keeping the club alive with his private money, which wasn't the case, and that he was relevant for the club with all his contacts and uh, his, his connections to sponsors and all that, no matter if it's true or not. But he might, a lot of people believe uh, that he was the patron, that he was the man in charge, and whenever he leaves the club, it will be shattered. And massive amount of people really believed that he was the strong man and he was the he was Mr. Schalke and he had always the support of the tablet paper. They called him what did they call him as well? They called him the, the Kotlet Kaiser. I don't know what what the, what the English uh, expression might be, but they really take their part in the story and uh, also. A lot of people within the club supported him. Hoop Stevens, the manager of all the managers of Schalke, uh, said that he would wish for Clemens Tönnies to come back to the club um, because he could be a great aid also. But a lot of people, in the, as I put it um, before, a lot of people in the new board realized that you can't really get Clemens Tönnies back into the club as an advisor or an aide or someone who really uh, stands at the sideline. If he really returns to Schalke, then all he wants to, to have is uh, full charge and full power. And I can't see that the new board really would let him do so. And I think that's the reason why maybe Clemens Tönnies had a phone call with a, a new CEO of Schalke and but nothing happened afterwards, and I'm quite sure that he won't return to the club. Well, let's hope so. Ron, thank you so much for talking uh, about these complicated topics with us. For, for yeah, I have, I have uh, to look up the word Kaiser, Kotlet uh, Kaiser in English. Chop Kaiser, I would, I would translate it to. Is, is it a Chop Kaiser? The Emperor of Chops? Uh. I mean, Putin loves his pork shops. <laughs> but uh, anyways, I I, uh, I was tremendous fun uh, talking to you about this. Um, well, fun might be the, the wrong word for for such uh, serious and convoluted topics, but it was it was interesting talking to you, rather. Um, so uh, before I let you go, tell our listeners where they can find you on on Twitter and where they can find your work. Oh, uh, uh, my work is it's all published on uh, my website uh, ron uh, minus u l r i c h dot d on twitter on uh, 11 no that's easy on 11 on twitter well uh, we'll be back next week with another edition of Talking Foosball Extra until then it is goodbye for now